This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I feel as if I'm very inarticulate in a lot of my prose, in mm. everyday speech, in, in everyday yeah. life. I, I feel like I'm never saying what I mean properly or never doing justice mm. to what I think. So poetry for me is still always my only way of properly expressing myself. Mm. It may be inadequate, but yeah. it's the best we've got. I'm Maurice Reardon, editor of the Poetry Review, and this morning I'm talking to Helen Mort. Thank you, Helen, for dropping by. Helen is a regular contributor to the Poetry Review. She's also known around here as a foiler. Doesn't mean anything rude, just means she's been a foil's young poet, and Helen holds the, the world record for being a, a foil's young poet. So she had that kind of apprenticeship, uh, but then her first book, Division Street, was a huge critical and popular success and was up for many prizes, several of which uh, she she won. Helen, you've had a, a very distinguished, I guess, apprenticeship as a poet, and I'd kind of like to ask you a little bit about your background, your literary background. Well, I, I've never studied English literature. I didn't study that at university, which I sometimes feel a bit worried about because I feel like there's lots of things that I might have missed out on or that there might be gaps in my reading. But I actually studied social and political science, specialising in psychology. I think because I'd always written from an early age, uh, that's why I was entering the, the FOIL competition. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to study, I guess I had this perhaps naive view that I always wanted to keep poetry purely for pleasure and enjoyment. And I only ever wanted to read things because I was driven to read them, not because I was being asked to study them. And which isn't because I don't think that's important and and really worthwhile. But um, so I started thinking, well, what are writers interested in? What what makes them tick or what makes me tick? I realised it was to do with, with people and what they do. I've noticed or other people have pointed out to me that even though I write a lot about place and landscape, my poems always have people moving mm. through them. There's a lot of movement um, and they're often, yeah, they're very populated poems. So I suppose one of the reasons I was drawn to studying psychology was because I'm interested in what makes people tick. Mm. So I've always had literature, not on the periphery of my life at all, at the centre of my life, but it's always been very much nothing I've studied officially it's always been a, a love I suppose mm. and I think I get it from my mum reading to me when I was a kid and from my dad introducing me to certain poets when I was a teenager. So you did have that kind of poetic encouragement as uh, as a youngster? Definitely it wasn't something that was big at my school at all but I remember my dad telling me about poets that he liked I remember him introducing me to Seamus Heaney and Wilfred Owen and Norma McCaig who I absolutely love so I think all those things kind of, they kind of go in by osmosis, don't they? And you, yeah. you absorb these influences. So that would have been, your childhood would have been in Sheffield and Chesterfield, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, North yeah. Midlands, really. Chesterfield's yeah. a funny place because I think it's on that boundary between, mm. and Sheffield, they're on that boundary between the north and the south. I was uh, making a recording recently for the Echo Chamber on Radio 4. We went up the, the Crooked Spire, which is oh, the no. famous bent church in Chesterfield, a very distinctive church spire. And when we were standing there, uh, we were asking the church verger whether this was the north or not. And I think it's got that interesting identity. And I'm always drawn to places that are on the edge of two things in that way. For instance, the bit of northeast Derbyshire where I grew up and where my mum and dad still live is a so slightly slightly a border because 
it's quite rural in some ways. There's lots of fields and woodlands and open spaces, but it's also ex-industrial landscape and it's scarred by landfill sites and open casting and there's a lot of knockdown buildings and things like that. So I think I'm sort of, I feel comfortable in those those kind of places yeah. like Chesterfield, which is sort of the north, but some people might say it isn't yeah. depending on how you look at it. That's interesting. You bring in the whole idea of borderland. I think we'll come back to that. Actually, I wanted to bring up something specific in relation to that. So you studied at Cambridge, so mm -hmm. you, you came south, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's a familiar thing for, for northern writers, Tony Harrison, many other writers and so on. But some place I think you refer to poetry or a poem as crossing an invisible picket line, which I think is a very, a very striking phrase. And you've written, of course, about picket lines and specifically a poem called Scab. There's a suggestion there, I suppose, of uneasiness, class betrayal or whatever. Mm. Do you think poets are generally scabs? I don't think they're scabs. Uh, I think that they're observers and sometimes that act of observation can be quite an uncomfortable one or you can feel that it's an uncomfortable mm. one in, in yourself and, and yet you're drawn to it again and again. I know when I was writing that poem, I, I struggled for ages to write it because I wanted to write something about the miners' strike and about the legacy of it, but because I wasn't part of it myself I felt like I didn't have a right to in some ways and it was only when I started to think about Jeremy Della's film The Battle of Orgreave mm -hmm. and how that shows a reconstruction of those events in Orgreave many many years later I got really interested in this theme of reconstruction and reenactment and how terrible things that happen get played out again and again and again but I think just as important as that notion of reenactment was in enabling me to write the poem was the sense of, of film and being an observer. I think that's something that I'm always drawn to because I often feel like that in my own life. I sort of, I think a lot of writers do. You sort of feel as if you're watching things from a certain remove or you, you've always got one eye on, on how you might put things into words or make sense of your experience in that way. And so you can't help doing that because that's a part of your writing process. But you also feel a bit guilty about doing mm. it or like you don't quite belong anywhere, which mm. is certainly something I've felt both when I'm at home mm. in Chesterfield or Sheffield or when I'm in other contexts. You sometimes get this feeling that perhaps you don't belong to either world entirely. And you give it a kind of biblical resonance too, don't you? That kind of uh, minor strike, which is interesting, I think, yeah. Just maybe sticking with the whole idea of borderland and so on. You are, as you say, you, you are an urban girl in a sense, but there's a lot of fresh air in your poems as well, a lot of outdoor activity. You're a runner, you're a climber, you're a dog lover. And when writing about the dogs, you know, you, you hover on that um, borderland between the human and the animal. I think that's quite important, uh, that, that kind of, I don't know, threshold between everyday and the otherworldly. Is that, that's quite important in your poems, I think. Yeah, I think perhaps it has something to do with, and I've only really thought about this recently, actually, because I've been working on my second collection. I was looking mm. at some of the poems and that, which are much more to do with the body and to do with the kind of landscapes. You mentioned open spaces, hills and mountains, and a lot of it drawn from my life as a runner and a climber, I suppose. And I was thinking about that in terms of 
the body and wanting to be free of it in, in almost some, some mm. impossible kind of way. And I think it links back to, um, it's always difficult reading reviews of your own work and things, isn't it? But I think I read a review of Division Street where the reviewer was pointing out that in a lot of the poems, they thought that the narrator or perhaps the poet, if you infer that the two are the same, was always trying to give themselves the slip in some way or kind of escape themselves. And I think that that poem you mentioned about the dogs um, is quite a good example of that i think mm. there is an interest in my work about yeah how you can get into other worlds perhaps or be, be free of your own skin and that's definitely much more of a concern in the book i've just been writing yeah I think. yeah you have in the past actually described a poem as a, as a haunting so mm. that, that probably ties in with that uh, just to push you a little bit more about that sort of escaping from the body You've written about uh, anorexia too. Mm. Is there a link there? I think so. I think that's, I suppose, one of the things that I was thinking about in relation to my next book um, to do with body image and particular pressures. I think there's something, the poem that I wrote about anorexia, which is also actually about the internet in a funny kind mm. of way, because it's about these sites, um, Thinspiration mm. sites, which are kind of yeah. horrific, really, images yeah. of emaciated people. Um, and, yeah, there's something... I was trying to write about in that poem or get at in that poem about particular things like eating disorders in terms of wanting to disappear <laughs> or wanting to escape the yeah. self somehow in a in a strange and quite c- controlling way. And I think particularly one of the reasons I wanted to relate it to the internet was that there's a strange kind of, there's a strangeness about bodies on the internet, I think, because it, it's at once disembodied and yet we're, we're being bombarded with bodily images sometimes in, in those kind of contexts, in the kind of sites I was writing about. So again, there's some, some kind of interest, I suppose, in being disembodied or in, in getting out of your own skin, maybe. Uh, that's interesting because actually what you've talked about there now strikes me as uncomfortable material. But your poetry actually has a, uh, a lyricism, it has a singing line. That's a very s- strong counterbalance to, if you like, that kind of grittiness in your work, I think. You know, that you're quite traditional, you know, quite different, in fact, to a lot of your contemporaries, I think, in a fidelity to traditional kind of lyricism. Do you think mm-hmm. that's a fair point? Oh, yeah, I think that is that is certainly a fair point. Uh, I guess it partly just comes from my influences and the writers that I Which mentioned earlier be. that I great, grew up reading like Seamus Heaney and mm. um, like Wilfred Owen. Mm. And, I, you know, everybody does this. You sometimes write a line and you think, oh, there's an echo in the sound of that or the meter of it or something. And you remember a poem that had a great impression on you and you think, oh, subconsciously, I've probably drawn some of that from there. So it is partly that. It's also partly perhaps that one of my tutors or influences when I was starting to write more seriously when I was, I was trying to go on writing courses and things like that was Don Patterson oh, yes. um, he's probably had a big influence on my work as well um, in, in that way I think it also comes from the way that I write because I I've spoken quite a lot about this, probably to the point of it getting boring, but I don't like to, my best work never comes to me at a desk. It's usually when I'm moving or when I'm out, when I'm walking and I get a line in my head and it won't go away and I sort of worry at that line and and hear it. So it always comes from a, a sound impulse really, rather than, although sometimes I also have a subject that I want to write about. It's more that I keep those ideas for subjects just in the background until I start to hear the form of them and I hear the way that I might write about them. Do you actually memorise the lines as you're running or walking or climbing? 
sometimes mm. the best ones often work like that I, I yeah I try and work them out in my head a bit before I commit them to paper mm. I get a lot of ideas when I'm driving as well and I have the same oh, yes. thing mm. I sort of have to repeat the poem over and over to myself aloud mm. yeah or just keep trying to remember it and sometimes you find that the lines that you've forgotten are the ones that perhaps weren't as good in some way but of course I don't have the patience to write like that all the time if I did mm. I'd never get anything done mm. sometimes you just have to sit down and make yourself write something or mm. make yourself explore an idea that you've had for a while but that is interesting so the poems are literally physically tied to to the body for you to walking and moving and that's very interesting and driving too yeah. I think yeah, driving well, is a yeah. kind of uh an incantatory sort of rhythm to it sometimes I think yeah. it does which makes it funny in a way that you had mentioned earlier that so many of the poems seem to be to do with escaping the body or mm. getting away from the, but, but yeah that the, 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 their origin is tied to something quite physical quite often mm. yeah that seems like a strange mm. kind of Contrast. Now, I know you, you have an interest in neuroscience because obviously you wrote a, your PhD on neuroscience. Mm -hmm. That's all, I, in fact, I know about your PhD. <laughs> but I'm curious and I wonder how, what that exploration meant and meant in relation to the poems. I must emphasize, uh, I always feel like I have to say this, this, that I'm not a neuroscientist. My background is as a social psychology student, really, interested in things to do with the mind and the brain, but not particularly knowledgeable about them, perhaps, in some way. So uh, what I was looking at in my PhD was, I suppose, popular neuroscience, the kind of books that might be read quite widely or things that make it into the news. I've just been struck over the last few years, really, how popular neuroscience has become and what a sort of orthodoxy it's assumed you see it in the papers all the time everyone's fascinated by the idea of being able to pinpoint what happens in our brain when we do something so almost I think it's kind of a comfort that rationality and that that um, ability to map the brain in some way and there have been incredible advances in neuroscience of course over the yeah the last couple of decades so but I was interested in it in terms of different modes of knowledge I suppose the more the more I started to read some of these books by neuroscientists and I'm talking about people like um, V.S. Ramachandran or yes. Ian McGilchrist who wrote mm. The Master and His Emissary which I think was a really influential book for me the more I read them I started being struck by the sense that some of the things and particularly some of the mysteries about consciousness that the neuroscientists were touching on or talking about are exactly the same as some of the questions that preoccupied some of my favorite poets so I was looking at Norman McCaig specifically his use of metaphor and how that relates yes, to yeah. neuroscientific discourse about metaphor processing uh, then I was looking at Paul Muldoon in terms of uh, pattern making and mm. hyperconnectivity, mm. um and finally i was looking at john burnside in relation to memory how we talk about the science of memory how he evokes the past in his work but also about how he's written about some of his own experiences of suffering with what he describes as apophenia which is seeing connections between things that aren't connected so i ended up um, uh, that's a lucky uh What's the word? Disability for a poet? Well, exactly. <laughs> and I got really interested in how that applies to other poems as well. So, yeah, I guess I, what I was, what I found or, or what I was interested in as I researched was that there are questions that science and poetry mm. approach differently, but that have a similar focus. And I, I'm, I know that there's a lot of interest now in, in, in the world of literary criticism in, in what we can 
co-opt and what we can learn from science, particularly neuroscience, things like cognitive poetics and those kind of disciplines, which are really fascinating. But it doesn't so often go the other way. So I sort of wanted to say, well, what can what might neuroscience be able to learn Mm. from poetry as well as vice versa? So I wanted the two to be in dialogue, I guess, Mm. rather than using neuroscience to kind of strengthen or deepen the ideas that poets might explore i think it's a two-way thing just to return to the three poets mckaig muldoon and burnside i think each of them are poets who experience some difficulty with articulation surprisingly Mm. in fact because they're eloquent poets uh, do you think that's something that resonates with you that language is actually difficult yeah i mean there's a great bit in mckaig where he, he's always talking about metaphors as being well in one poem he says he's grown to hate metaphors their exactness and their inadequacy and i think that's such a beautiful way of putting it the idea that mm. language can be both exact and inadequate and particularly language as we use it in poetry mm. that's something that i feel constantly And it's kind of what puts me off when I'm about to write a poem. As soon as I sit down to try and write something, I'm daunted by the sense of possibility Mm. and the idea that the poem is always better before you've written it than Mm. when you start to commit it to paper and narrow those possibilities. So I'm always struggling, as I'm sure most writers are, with the idea of not quite being able to say what I mean or not being able to mine the subject fully enough or Mm. not quite get to what I'm... I feel or what I think about something and yet at the same time it still remains my best means of expressing myself I feel as if I'm very inarticulate in in a lot of my prose in mm. everyday speech in in everyday yeah. life I, I feel like I'm never saying what I mean properly or never doing justice to what I think so poetry for me is still always my only way of properly expressing myself. Mm. So it may be inadequate, but yeah. it's the best we've got. And what about fiction? I know you've, uh, you're writing, have written a novel, you can tell me which. Is that a different experience? Um, it was different in a lot of ways. I've really enjoyed it. It's probably more of a novella than a novel. Just as my poems are quite short and don't tend to go over the page, I think the novel, the novel tended towards being short as well. I found it really liberating. I partly started writing it after Division Street had come out because... I thought it was a way of trying something where there was no precedent for what I was going to do. There was no expectation and it was okay to fail. And so it really freed me up just to write in a different way. I was very adamant that I was going to write, if I was going to try and write a novel, it had to be one that had a very strong plot and a very complicated plot. Otherwise, I feared that I might drift into just writing uh, like I do in my poems, if you, if you see what I mean, being less interested in, in a guiding narrative. And I really enjoyed the freedom of rather than waiting for something in the way I do with a lot of my poems, of just sitting down and seeing what happened in a certain chapter, given a vague structure or an idea of what needed to happen at certain points in the novel. Mm. So my characters became a big part of my life and I lived with Mm. them and really missed them actually when the first draft was finished. But in terms of how the chapters started, actually it was quite similar to my poetry in that I work in Leeds. Um, I'm a cultural fellow at the University of Leeds at the moment and I commute from Sheffield. So I've got a lot of my best ideas for the novel when I was walking from Leeds station up to my office. (laughs) And it started in the same way that a poem often does for me. I'd hear a line, a sentence that was gonna be in the chapter 
often the first sentence and then I'd try and develop it from there so it gave me a kind of framework so it's at once similar and really different I think from how I write poetry so you finished a novel I don't know if it's finished it's been through a couple of drafts and we'll have to see if anybody Mm. wants it or not I guess but yeah and you're well on with a new collection of poems too scheduled for maybe next year or the year after it's next summer yeah I actually started writing those poems in 2012 so before Division Street was published Mm. because that collection was already finished I was already writing new work so it's really nice to have that all brought together so some of those poems have appeared, I think, in, in the review. And maybe to give us a flavour of the new work, you would read one of the poems for us? Absolutely. Um, having talked a lot about the body and escaping the body, I th- the poem that I'm going to read is actually very bodily. Um, and I think we're used to, and certainly I'm used to, referring to the heart quite a lot in poetry, but not usually in the clinical sense. But this poem is about uh, an operation that my dad has had a few times and I thought the name for this operation was a very interesting word and when I first heard it I thought it was spelled differently from how it actually is. Ablation. Inside the Northern General they're trying to burn away a small piece of your heart. I want to know which bit, how much and what it holds. My questions live between what doctors call the heart and what we mean by it wide as the gap between brain and mind. And in our lineage of bypassed hearts, we should be grateful for the literal. I know my heart is your heart, good for running, not much else. And later, as you sit up in your borrowed bed, I get the whole thing wrong, call it oblation, offering or sacrifice, as if you'd given something up, as if their tiny fire was ritual and we could warm by it. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.